from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to this Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the director of the CER. I'm with my colleague Sam Lowe, who's a senior research fellow at the CER who specialises in trade issues. And we're going to talk today a bit about Brexit, the subject that everybody's forgotten about because COVID-19 is so much more important. But Brexit can't be ignored completely. Britain is on, has already left the EU and it's on course to leave the EU's laws and re- rules and regulations at the end of this year when the transitional arrangements end. My colleague Sam has just published uh, a new CER insight, about 2,000 words, on uh, why he believes the transitional arrangement should be extended as the withdrawal agreement does allow after December 2020. The withdrawal agreement is quite clear that both sides have to agree to an extension. It can be for up to two years. And the EU side is very clear that they can't bend the rules. So if in come November, just before we're due to leave the transition, suddenly Britain says, well, actually, we haven't finished the deal. Can we have a bit longer to stay in the single market to minimise disruption, Uh, stay in the customs union for a few more months? The EU will say no. There is a question as to whether the EU may or may not agree to some sort of uh, minimal arrangements to to minimise disruption if the, if the formal transition is not extended. But any in any case, the, the the EU is quite clear that the transition cannot be extended unless the UK asks for an extension and the EU agrees to it by the end of June 2020, which is rather soon. Especially since, because of the COVID-19 epidemic, um, negotiations have been greatly slowed down. We have this week a second round of negotiations. It should have been the fifth round. Three rounds have been missed because of the problems caused by COVID-19, because both David Frost and Michel Barnier fell ill. Both sides find it very difficult to negotiate uh, by webinar as opposed to face-to-face, particularly the EU side stresses how difficult it is. So there seems to be quite a strong case for extending the transitional arrangements, which means that Britain would stay in the single market and the customs union for a bit longer, it would postpone the pain of leaving for many businesses at a time when COVID-19 is really causing them huge amounts of pain. But Sam, could you explain uh, very briefly why you believe that uh, Britain should ask for an extension of the transitional arrangements? Yes, uh, thank you, Charles. I I, I think that taking into account the COVID-19 global pandemic and the fact that businesses, politicians and people in general are not thinking about Brexit right now. They're just thinking about how they respond to their immediate challenging circumstances. I think it's fair to say we're probably going to need a bit more time to negotiate the future relationship between the EU and the UK, especially if we want to uh, ensure a positive outcome. And to that regard, it makes sense to extend the transition period and say, well, we're going to need a bit more time, so let's give ourselves it. That makes eminent sense, and it's certainly the view one hears from many business leaders, if not all of them. But of course, there is a counter argument, and we've seen some counter arguments from David Frost, uh, the the UK's chief Brexit negotiator, who's close to Boris Johnson. He had a, issued a tweet recently with four arguments for not extending the transition. Let's run through them briefly, one by one. Um, 
The first one was that if you do extend the transition, it'll only lead to prevarication and foot dragging and it won't focus minds and concentrate attention on getting the deal done. If you want to get a deal, you have to have a deadline. and Everybody knows that's how the EU works. Isn't that a strong argument, Sam? I think under normal circumstances, it is a fairly strong argument. And I've even written in the past that it, it, it is possible for a trade agreement to be concluded this year between the EU and the UK. I wrote that before the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think under these specific circumstances where the government, businesses, people, as I said earlier, are distracted and otherwise engaged, and rightfully so, I think it's not true to say that if only there's a deadline, a deal would get done. I think it's quite possible that even with this hard deadline, a deal isn't done because there's been no time to do one. The political uh, focus just hasn't been there and the leaders have not been able to think about the compromises they need to make and make them and sell them to their population. So I think it's just not as simple as he's, as he's making out. I think looking back on how things were before, it doesn't necessarily carry over given the existing circumstances and uh, the pandemic we're dealing with. Okay, fair enough. Uh, David Frost's second point is that if you extend the implementation period or the transition, you create extra uncertainty for business because business won't know what's going to happen in the long run. It'll get used to living with its current arrangements and actually business wants to know what's going to happen. So they want 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 the new arrangements to kick in as soon as possible. I'm not sure that's ever been the case <laughs> when, when you think about uh, the business view on Brexit and the future relationship in, in general, but it's particularly not a convincing argument now in that I think that announcing a transition extension now would actually create certainty for business in that they would know that going into 2021, the status quo would continue to apply, that existing trading relationship relations between the EU and the UK would continue and that they would not have to be making any big adjustments ready for January the 1st, 2021. Because under the Frost desired outcome of a free trade agreement being concluded by the end of the year and coming into force at the beginning of next year, businesses will have to make quite significant changes to how they trade with the EU. They will have to uh, take into account new administration, new bureaucracy, new friction and new costs and asking them to prepare for that and to adjust to that, whilst also asking them to react to a pandemic and the economic fallout from the government measures put in place to deal with it, I think is slightly foolhardy, it's slight, slightly reckless. So, so under these circumstances, no, I don't think business would welcome even a trade agreement becoming into force at the beginning of next year, and they specifically wouldn't welcome leaving without an agreement in place. And I think they would, in fact, breathe a sigh of relief to hear that the status quo is going to continue for another year, another two years, and that it's uh, Brexit and falling, leaving the transition period is a problem for another day. Yeah, that certainly fits with most of the conversations I've had with business leaders recently. But David Frost has the third argument, which I guess is irrefutable, that if we want to stay in the single market and the customs union by extending the transition a bit, it'll cost money in very rough terms, you know, roughly 10 billion euros a year for the privileges of of taking EU rules without having a vote on them. Yes, he's right. Uh, If if the transition period is extended, then the UK will have to pay uh, additional money 
to the EU. My my argument would be that in the grand scheme of things, it's not it's not that much money when you take into account the measures put being put in place to deal with the fallout from the pandemic. And if if it ensures that food and medical supplies uh, imported and exported to our most significant trading partner continue to flow freely for the immediate future, then I, I think that's money well spent. Fair enough. Uh, David Ross has one final point, which is that if we stay in the transitional arrangements for a longer period, we're subject to EU rules and regulations, restricting Britain's freedom of manoeuvre, when we need to be nimble and we need to be able to move fast to respond in just the way we want to the COVID-19 problems. Hasn't he got a point there? I think if, he's, if the argument was we were going to be bound to EU rules with no say for the indefinite future, so say for five years, 10 years, 15 years, then, then, then yes, he would have a he would have a point. But we're talking about one year, maybe two. And if you look at the UK's response to COVID-19 so far, it's very difficult to argue that it's been hamstrung at all by EU membership. And it's, I think it's difficult to argue that that would be the case, that we would become hamstrung in the future. I think the only argument I've seen where specifics have been put on this point, where someone has identified something that we might want to do next year that we wouldn't be able to do if we if the transition if the UK remained within the transition period is if we wanted to implement a new free trade agreement with say the US and this was this was an argument put forward by Shankar Singham of the Institute for Economic Affairs but again I'm just not sure it's very convincing the US is dealing with the COVID-19 fallout right now it has a election coming up in November it seems very, very unlikely the UK is ever going to be in a position where it is going to be able to implement a new free trade agreement with the United States or anyone else next year because free trade agreements aren't really a priority for any of these countries right now, and and rightfully so. Right. Well, uh, that, that, that you think batted off quite well the arguments against an extension, but of course it's not up to um, not up to us. It's up to the government. And if, if uh, perhaps it's worth considering a little how the COVID-19 uh, outbreak, the pandemic, is it actually affecting the Brexit talks directly and indirectly? I mean, I guess one could argue uh, both ways. You could argue that actually the government may in the end choose to go for a softer Brexit than it has, is apparently trying to pursue, one with more greater alignment to EU rules and regulations, because business has had such a tough time with COVID-19. Uh, uh, disrupting current trade patterns with the EU would be a, a, a double whammy, a, a second a second hit to business, which is, is a case for a softer Brexit. Against that, I think both you and I have heard some of the harder line Eurosceptics make the case, well, actually, COVID-19 makes it easier to go for a very hard Brexit, because the, given that COVID-19 will hit the economy by, what, 10 or 20 percent, the fact that Brexit may hit, a few, hit it by a few percentage points almost will be hardly noticed. And then whatever the economic damage is, it's easy enough to blame it on COVID-19 so they can get away with the harder Brexit than they could without COVID-19. So I don't know if you, which side of that argument you take or perhaps take a different view, Sam. Well, I, I always wonder about this argument that you can, I suppose, disguise the economic shock of Brexit within the COVID-19 fallout, because I, 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 think, I think I'm not sure that would be the case in that I think the Brexit hit would be felt on top of COVID-19 rather than uh, something that's completely distinct from or, or, or hidden uh, from, from the public in that the Brexit shock is a permanent hit to the UK economy. The UK will face new barriers to trade with the EU forever. 
and that will lower the capacity, the growth capacity of the UK. The, the COVID hit, hopefully, will be temporary. It will be short. We hope we will hopefully bounce back. I think we might struggle to bounce back quite to the point where we were prior to it, it, it coming into effect. But, 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 but that's the hope. And I, I just think it's a bit reckless, a bit foolhardy to say, well, you know, one upside of COVID-19 is that we can hide the fact that Brexit did any damage. And I think that could come back to bite people. And my hope is that within government, whilst I think you are right, completely correct in saying that some people think this and it's a open discussion, I just hope that I suppose the grown-ups in the room, their voices win out. And I think one of the positive things about the current government and the Boris Johnson government, both the new one and, and the one before, is that, is that it is prone to changing its mind. And my hope is that the Prime Minister, who ultimately will be the person who makes this decision... Uh, we'll, we'll roll back on previous statements where he said he wouldn't extend the transition period and make a decision that, in my opinion, uh, would be in the best interest of the country and, and, and ask for an extension. What do you think? I mean, it's worth worth reminding ourselves that whatever the arguments for an extension of the transition are, the briefings out of number 10 over the last week, uh, particularly since Dominic Cummings came back, having been rather ill himself, are that there is no possibility of any, in any respect of extending the transition one teensy-weensy bit. That seems to be the line out of number 10. Uh, of course, as you say, they've changed their mind before, radically, such as when they changed their mind on the Irish border issues in the autumn. But um, I think what we, what we, the reality is, Sam, that the government is divided on this issue. Uh, um, what it's divided on, I don't, know about, I don't know about the extension, I'm not privy to its thinking about the extension, other than the fact that they say they won't do it. But I think it is divided on this issue, whether no deal would be such a catastrophic uh, scenario or not. I mean, you and I think that if Britain leaves the EU at the end of this, well, it leaves the transitional arrangements at the end of this year without a, a free trade agreement in place, it'll lead to a very hard Brexit with huge disruptions of trade and investment flows between Britain and the, in the EU, with a lot of hardship caused on both sides, but particularly on the British side. Uh, so we, we, we were, were of the school that thinks a no-deal exit would be quite harmful, but there are there is a school, and it's certainly rep strongly represented with some of the advisors in number 10, which says actually that we need a kind of uh, revolutionary start. We need to go back to year zero and have a get out of the EU's rules and regulations and rise up from the ashes, the phoenix rises up from the ashes and starts again with a completely new set of economic principles and a new set of trading arrangements. There are the, the, the revolutionaries rather than the conservatives, if you put it that way. And I think we both know that in the government there are people taking both those points of view. The civil service is fairly conservative with a small c. Um, some of the officials in number 10 are definitely radicals or revolutionaries. And I think the cabinet is undoubtedly divided on whether or not Britain should go to the brink and be willing to leave without a deal or not. I, I think you're completely correct. And I suppose my, my only argument would be, couldn't we have this discussion later? Do we need to have this moment of rupture, this political, this, this sort of economic awakening, just as we're hopefully going to be recovering from the fallout of the biggest economic shock in a century, just as we're recovering from the fallout of a global pandemic? Does it need to be on January the 1st next year? Or can we kick the can on this discussion slightly to a point where the British economy is slightly less fragile? I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for that. That seems to be a strong argument for extension. And I think it's worth just in considering the impact of COVID-19 on the Brexit talks, um, I think we, we we perhaps should have pointed out that the of the five rounds of negotiation that they 
they have should have held. Uh, they've now only they're holding the second round this week because the Brexit, the COVID-19 has actually prevented the two sides from meeting. The EU side certainly says it finds talking by video link rather rather ineffective compared to sort of huddling in corridors and doing deals at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and so that it, it, there is, it is a, there is a, there is a technical reason why you might need more time. It's just very hard to actually do constructive meetings by video link. But that, nevertheless, obviously, the UK side claims it. Nevertheless, they can they can do it if they if they need to. But the point, my point is really that um, if 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 Boris Johnson is in a very strong position, partly because of COVID, the, the sympathy that people felt for him when he got ill, partly because he was in a strong position even before COVID nineteen struck. At the moment, he's he's uh, primus into more than primus into Paris in the Tory party. He's he's the very strong leader. I think his instincts will be. The ones that are likely to prevail. He does listen to other people, of course, and he's listening to many different people on COVID-19. But on Brexit, he has strong views. His advisers have strong views, and they tend to lean in the hard direction towards saying, "Well, uh, the leaving with the EU without a deal would not be such a bad thing. Uh, we will fight. We will fight through. We'll, 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 we'll plucky little Britain will will come through as as it did in 1940." And um, I think uh, if he wants to go for a hard Brexit, he's he's entitled. He will he'll probably be able to push Britain that way. But equally, if he does think again, if he does read your your insights, Sam, and, and perhaps hesitate uh, over the arguments for leave for not extending the transition, if he does think really we we should get a deal before we leave, then he's in a very strong position politically to do that. Of course, some of the hardline right-wing Brexiteers will object and squeal and be unhappy. But most of them will go along with it because after we have left the EU and extending the transition, as you say, is only a matter of perhaps, you know, three, six, nine, 12, 15 months of EU laws applying. And the case for an extension is, is as you've outlined, a very, a very strong one that we haven't really had time to focus on Brexit. And so long as COVID-19 is dominating everybody's time and attention and energy levels, then, you know, we can't do full justice to the Brexit negotiations. So I think if he wants to, extend uh, he he can without too much parliamentary opposition i'm not sure if you agree with that sam what what do you think uh the impact of keir starmer becoming uh, leader of the labor party will will be here will, will it lead to more forensic opposition and more vocal opposition or do you think uh, a little difference given johnson's majority well, I think it could change the, the the weather when people get round to thinking about Brexit, which may not be that often for the coming in the next few weeks and months. I mean, I, uh, Keir Starmer is the opposite of Boris Johnson in almost every respect. Uh, he's kind of anti-matter Boris Johnson. He he's a man of detail. He's a little a little on the dull side. He he focuses on the issues. Uh, he's not very exciting. He doesn't doesn't. Uh, doesn't invent things in the way that the prime minister appears to have occasionally done. Uh, he's very has a very opposite style of of operating from the prime minister. And I think that if if people start to tire of Boris Johnson's panache and brio and broad brush approach, they may find the the forensic argumentation of of, of a good barrister rather appealing uh, and rather different uh, and ra rather an attractive alternative. If so, if basically what I'm saying is if Boris trips up, Keir could look like a an attractive alternative, but for the for now, of course, Boris is is dominating the political field, and whatever Keir Starmer says isn't going to make much impact on people at the moment because everybody's focused on supporting. The, most people have simply focused on supporting the government in its efforts to fight the COVID nineteen outbreak. What I do think, Sam, 
is that if Keir Starmer uh, starts holding the government to account on the nature of the Brexit talks and the kind of deal that the UK government is going for, uh, which is a much harder Brexit than most British citizens appreciate, then that may allow businesses to speak out more than they've done. Some businesses are, um, are you know, very, very concerned about the way Brexit is going, but just are too scared to say very much. So if, if, and that may encourage the media to speak out more too. So if you have a combination of a more effective opposition, leading to a more vocal business community, and perhaps a more, a pluckier media, then the, the, the trajectory we're heading on, which is for a very hard Brexit, if not a no-deal Brexit, may be harder for the government to pursue. And the more they are held to account by a good, a good and strong opposition team, and Keir Starmer is a very forensic lawyer, uh, then it may be harder for them to go for the, the option of the hardest possible Brexit. I think that sounds right. I guess, I guess this falls into another category of we're just going to have to wait and see. And my, and my fear with not my fear with the current government, but my expectation of the current government is that ultimately these big decisions all come down to what does Boris Johnson want to do and what does he see as being in his best interest. And the problem is that we, we very rarely know what that is until very close to a deadline or, or, or at least until very late in the day. Yeah. Perhaps finally, Sam, we might just spend a few minutes thinking about, about the, the, the most difficult issues in the negotiations themselves. We've talked about the extending the transition and what the British government really wants to achieve. We haven't talked about the, the issues themselves, which will determine whether or not, if the government does refuse to extend the transition, it's going to get a deal in the next six months uh, or, 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 or not. Uh, perhaps what, what do you think, Sam, is the, the most difficult sticking points? As, as the government does try and push for a very quick deal in the next few months. What, what are the issues which may just derail the talks? I think, I think they're the ones that have, have been known for a while. So uh, disagreements on access to fishing waters, so fishing quotas and the like. Uh, disagreements on what conditions should be placed upon such a free trade agreement in the areas of uh, environment, labour, state aid. So these the so-called level playing field requirements where the EU wants the UK, at least in the area of state, state aid, to continue to be bound to EU approaches and then on environment and labour commit not to roll back existing levels of protection. But the UK wants something much looser, much more similar to what the EU has agreed with countries such as, as, as Canada, which are, which are non-binding and a bit more airy-fairy sort of language around well, of course, we we will we'll have high labour standards, but 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 you don't need to worry about it too much, and there's no need for any enforcement, and and those disagreements are still uh, quite large. There's there's a disagreement when it comes to the role of the European Court of Justice as to whether it should have any role at all. So this is to do with what how disputes between the UK and the EU should be resolved in future. What sort of, what, what what the panel that decides on them should look like, whether the Court of Justice's opinion should ever be called upon or not. And then we also have a sort of overarching disagreement about the structure of the, uh, uh, of the deal, whether it should be lots of separate deals, so an agreement on trade, a separate agreement, say, on justice and home affairs, a separate agreement, say, on research cooperation, or whether it should be one big package that sits under some sort of governance framework. And... These are quite big issues. I've written in the past uh, an insight for the Centre for European Reform uh, arguing a way through, saying what a compromise could look like. 
But this was, I wrote this before COVID-19 and I wrote this uh, under the assumption that uh, the UK and EU's attention would be fully on this topic and that we would be able to find space for politicians to row back from existing firm statements of a compromise to be made on both sides. And now I'm just slightly more concerned that that space isn't there and politicians aren't quite in that headspace. Yeah, well, I, I agree with those points, Sam. And well, the other point I would add to it, I know you, 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 you share my view on this, is that the Irish situation promises to get very nasty indeed. Indeed, when I've talked to EU negotiators recently, they say to me the thing that worries them most about Brexit, uh, the Brexit talks, perhaps, you know, as much as or even more than the state aid and the level playing field and fish, is the Northern Irish protocol of the withdrawal agreement, which is not part of the future relationship. It's the withdrawal agreement already signed and sealed, already an international treaty, uh, ratified by the United Kingdom, which says that Northern Ireland uh, effectively stays in the EU's customs union and single market in many in many respects, and that therefore there will need to be checks on goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland to make sure that they comply with EU customs and single market and VAT and uh, and rules of origin rules and many other sorts of uh, bureaucratic rule. And there have to be some checks also on goods going the other way, though fewer checks from Northern Ireland to the to Great Britain. However, British ministers, including the prime minister, keep on saying actually there won't be any checks at all, although they've actually signed a bit of paper, which is a legal, illegally binding treaty, saying effectively that there will be checks. And this really worries the EU. They worry that the British government may be prepared to um, disregard an international treaty. And if you talk to British officials and say, don't worry, don't worry, of course they'll follow the letter of the law. And we will, Britain as a country does respect the rule of law. But nevertheless, the Prime Minister and some of his current ministers, including the current Northern Ireland Secretary, do imply that they may be unwilling to follow this treaty they've signed. And this creates problems of trust and ill will as opposed to goodwill. And it's very, very worrying to the EU side and, of course, the Irish. Yes, I completely agree with you on all of that. I think it's an area of great concern and it requires the British government to step back, step away from some of the comments they've made this year and to accept what it is they've agreed to and to implement it on the ground. And uh, as we've been discussing throughout this entire, throughout this podcast, they need to get to this point before the end of the year. They, they do, they do. And it seems the number of hurdles they have to jump over if they want to get really do a deal by the end of the year is is is, is enormous. Um, I guess they could, I think as you've written before COVID-19, so they could perhaps get a, a very simple uh, free trade agreement with the EU if they accept the EU's terms on the level playing field provisions, which they're not willing to do. Uh, but there won't be time to do the many other negotiations on aviation and freight and research and security and so on that also will have to be tackled in the long run so i think both you and i think that the brexit process will whatever happens this year will run on for many more years and keep us both busy for many more years probably doing many more podcasts on it and writing many more insights on it well i suppose that's the silver lining yes it'll keep us busy it'll keep us busy and many, many other people busy too well, Sam, thanks, thanks for chatting. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back with another Centre for European podcast very soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.